0: to our Old Testament reading in Exodus 10. We'll be reading verses 1 and 2. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 52. Exodus 10, 1 and 2. And if you're able to, would you please rise for the reading of God's Word. Mm. Word of the Lord from Exodus 10, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord... Said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Now let's turn over to Romans 9 for our New Testament reading. Romans 9, there we'll read verses 15 through 18. Pew Bible, page 945. Romans 9, 15 through 18. Paul there proclaims, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. You can be seated. This evening, as we take up Exodus once again, I'd like to, uh, to walk through or to, to look at the book of Exodus with a bit of a different frame than last time. Last time we... Um, We majored on the theological interpretation of the book of Exodus, but tonight I would like to um, look at Exodus in the broader context of the story of salvation, the broader context of how we are to understand Exodus um, as it is given to us in the story of redemption. Before I get into that I'd like to confess that I am an impatient son of Adam one of the results of this impatience is that I have pet peeves and one enormous pet peeve that I continue to have is when people don't pay attention at the beginning of movies um, I'm a little overbearing to be honest uh, when it comes to this I um, we all are fans of the Star Wars movies, and the Star Wars movies make me nervous. I get anxiety at the beginning of the Star Wars movies um, because I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to read fast enough to get the context of the story. I get <laughs> I get bound up in that, um, and if somebody is distracting me, well, they've ruined the entire uh, they've ruined the entire movie. Um, And they've run that experience for me and I will rationalize this. I'm doing it right here right now before your eyes Um, By saying that it's important Because without paying attention at the beginning you will miss the context of What comes after all that you do after the beginning is going to be diminished if you don't get uh, what uh, What the beginning tells you so? What I would like to do this evening is to frame Exodus with a certain context for us, so that we get everything that we should get out of the book of Exodus. And I'm going to suggest that we understand the book of Exodus, and we'll we'll return here, but especially the book of Exodus, with a certain contextual frame around it. And that contextual frame is Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, as a reminder, God speaks to the serpent in verse 15, and he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I us to approach Exodus with this framework in mind as we look to consider how God is bringing about his divine purpose in the people of in the lives of the people of Israel and so let's begin in Exodus chapter 1 together this evening and I want us to read Exodus chapter 1 with that in the background that there is a war going on it's a very real war it's a spiritual war But it's a very real war, nevertheless. It's a war that has real-life ramifications. And we see it beginning in verse 8 of chapter 1. And we're going to read through verse 22, read the rest of the chapter. Again, reading this with the background of Genesis 3.15. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. <clears throat> they built for Pharaoh, store cities: Pithom, and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad... And the egyptians were in dread of the people of israel so they ruthlessly made the people of israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves then the king of egypt said to hebrew midwives one of whom was named shiphrah and the other puah when you serve as midwife to the hebrew women and see them on the birthstool if it's a son you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this, let the male, and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt Well, with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's consider this with that background that we're given in Genesis Three fifteen. god has stated what his plan is and he has restated that in genesis we remember that he said in genesis 12 verse 2 to abram i will make you a great nation i will bless you and make your name great and we see that god has already begun to come good on his promises in fact he has been so successful in bringing about his promises that it makes that it makes Pharaoh fear because the people of Israel have multiplied. Why have they multiplied? Because God promised that they would. And he's bringing about his promises. We also see the immutability of God's plan. In verse 8, Pharaoh declares that the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Furthermore, it appears that Nothing that Pharaoh devises will work to weaken Israel in his midst. We know know that Pharaoh places heavy burdens. It says in verse 11, he has afflicted them with heavy burdens. He has them make cities for him. But the more they were oppressed, verse 12 says, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Why? Why? Because God has promised to bless the people of Israel. But then we see that Pharaoh's actions reveal him to be a son of the serpent. We read in our text in verse 15 and 16 the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and set them on a birthstool. If it is the son, you shall kill him. Why? Why does the son of the serpent command the women of Israel to kill the male seed? Well, because they're multiplying, you say. Well, yes, because they're multiplying. But dear ones, I would suggest to you there's another reason, a theological reason because of Genesis 3:15 the serpent is at war this is bigger than Egypt and Israel as nations this fight has spiritual ramifications it has cosmic ramifications james hamilton wrote this the seed of the serpent commands the hebrew midwives to murder the male seed of the woman and when that fails he orders his people to throw newborn hebrew boys into the river and that's exactly what is happening we readily attribute this even in our own day do we not the sin of child murder which goes by the name of abortion we see the satanic role in that we see that that Satan has done a, a very effective job at convincing young people that they are in a trap and cannot handle a child well Here, we ought to attribute this to the serpent as well. This is satanic, what is happening. And Pharaoh's actions reveal him over and over to be a son of the serpent. But we also need to see obedience to the Lord resulting in blessing. Verse 21, note what it says that the blessing is to the Hebrew midwives. Because the midwives feared the Lord rather than Pharaoh... God gave them what? God gave them families. God gave them families. And so we see here a cosmic spiritual battle. The son of the serpent against the seed of the woman. And the more the son of the serpent presses in, the more he tries to to kill the seed of the woman, what does God do? He multiplies them over and over and over again. God has already been at work blessing his people, but the serpent has already been at work attempting to destroy the seed of the woman. However, we also want to understand that this is a part of God's plan. God said right after he repeats the promises of the covenant to Abraham in Genesis 15, this is what verses 13 through 16 say. Then the Lord said to Abram, "...know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation." For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Even before it happens, God, in essence, declares his sovereign control over what is going to happen. And I want you to note God's mastery over the situation in the book of Exodus. And I want you to notice it in three areas. And It'll be these three areas that we examine this evening. First, I want you to note the birth and upbringing of Moses, the birth and upbringing of Moses. In Exodus 2, we have the story of the birth and upbringing of Moses. And I don't have time to read that this evening. Most of you are familiar with that story. But I do want you to consider the extraordinary providence in the life of Moses, in the early life of Moses. Moses is born amidst this decree of Pharaoh that the male children ought to be thrown into the Nile to the crocodiles. But what we see in Moses is that his mother hid him for three months in spite of the edict of Pharaoh. And when she could no longer hide him, she put him in a basket among the reeds of the Nile on the exact day, at the exact time, and at the exact location that the daughter of Pharaoh was going to bathe. Moses' sister just happened to be watching this and to think of a great plan to suggest a Hebrew wet nurse. And in direct rebellion against her father's decree, Pharaoh's daughter has pity on Moses and adopts him into the most powerful house in all of Egypt. Friends, Moses wasn't supposed to be alive, but instead he grows up in the house of the son of the serpent. I ask you this, whose hand guided the basket? Well, we all know the answer to that, don't we? God's hand guided the basket. It was in the very Nile River where the sons of Israel were supposed to meet their death. It was from this graveyard of the sons of Israel that God would bring about the redemption of God's people and ultimately salvation. When we think about God's sovereign control over the birth and upbringing of Moses, think about Psalm 3311, which proclaims the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation, The prophet Isaiah says that God is declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Why does Moses' mother hide him for three months? Why does she place him in a basket on the re- in the reeds of the Nile? Why does she cast him forth into the water? Why is Pharaoh's daughter bathing in the river at just that time? Why is Moses' sister observing this? Why does she suggest a Hebrew midwife? And why is Moses spared and brought up in the house of Pharaoh? Because God's plan will be accomplished. God will accomplish all his good pleasure. He has declared the end from the beginning. And we see his sovereign purposes. In the birth and upbringing of Moses. God has heard the crying of his people. He knows. And in his sovereign plan, he is bringing about their salvation. God has a purpose. So I was studying this. I ran across um, Alexander McLaren's sermon on this. He was a great English preacher of the 19th century. I want you to listen To McLaren explain the importance of God's providence in Moses' upbringing. McLaren wrote The great lesson of this incident, as of so much before, is the presence of God's wonderful providence working out its designs by all the play of human motives. The very same principle which sent Saul of Tarsus to be trained at the feet of Gamaliel and made Luther a monk. And the Augustinian convent at Erfurt planted Moses in Pharaoh's palace and taught him the wisdom of Egypt against which he was to contend. It was a strange irony of providence that put him so close to the throne which he was to shake. If he was to hate and to war against idolatry and to rescue an unwilling people from it, he must know the rottenness of the system and must have lived close enough to it to know what went on behind the scenes and how foully it smelled when near. God fashioned the vessel, then filled it. Wonderful words to describe what God is doing in the birth and upbringing of Moses. I also want you to see God's sovereign hand in God's victory over Pharaoh. Pharaoh. The issue, the issue of God's victory over Pharaoh has less to do with the fact that Israel were Pharaoh's slaves and more to do with the fact that as Pharaoh's slaves, they were not free to worship their God. Now, you might think that, aren't you splitting hairs here, Pastor? Well, I sort of am splitting hairs. They are slaves to Pharaoh. But dear one, there were others that were slaves to Pharaoh. The issue of Israel's slavery was not merely that they were slaves. The greater issue at hand is that as slaves, they were not free to worship their God as God had commanded them. This is not to make light of the issue of slavery, but only to say that the greater issue was one of worship. Look at Exodus 5. Turn to Exodus 5 with me, if you would. We'll read verses one through nine after Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh thus says the Lord the God of Israel let my people go but notice they don't stop there they do not stop with let my people go there's more that they may hold a fast to me in the wilderness but Pharaoh said who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go I do not know the Lord moreover I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Same day, Pharaoh commanded taskmasters of the people and their foremen shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather, gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks they've made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle therefore they cry let us go and offer sacrifice to our god Let the heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words the issue here friends is not merely slavery the issue is worship it is the fact that they desire to go and worship i want you to see that the seed of the serpent has enslaved the seed of the woman, and he refuses to allow sacrifice. He refuses to allow the worship of God. The reason why Pharaoh and Exodus are so important is that they build a framework for God's people to understand their own identity and the opposition that God's people will face. And we see this clearly, and perhaps know clearly, in what J.A. Motyer called the vocabulary of Pharaoh's heart. Turn with me to uh, to the end of Exodus 9. The end of Exodus 9. And in this spiritual battle, we read this interesting passage that describes what's going on in the heart of Pharaoh, what's going on in the heart of God's enemy. And we begin reading in verse 34, and we'll read over into chapter 10, verse 1. But think about how Pharaoh's heart is described here. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hell and thunder had ceased, he sinned again, yet again, and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Well, that's pretty easy to understand, don't we? Pharaoh has hardened his heart against the Lord. Pharaoh, as as the proud king of Egypt, has, has hardened his heart against God, though he ought to have repented. But we read in verse 35, so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Well, there we get sort of a neutral statement, don't we? The heart of Pharaoh was hardened. But then we look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Why? That I may show these signs of mine among them. Friends, I want you to see several things when we look at this spiritual warfare going on. First thing I want you to see here is that the battle is the Lord's. It's tempting to read Exodus and to think that the issue is between Moses and Pharaoh. But the issue is actually between the God of Israel and the serpent and his menagerie. The serpent in Egypt has a menagerie of God's. God will unleash his fury against ten gods of Egypt, all false gods. But they're really just a menagerie of the creation of the serpent. And God has determined to reveal his glory over the serpent and the bankruptcy of idolatry. So the battle is the Lord's. Observe as well that Pharaoh's heart is obviously against the Lord. We are told that Pharaoh sinned. Though the battle is not against God and Pharaoh, nevertheless, Pharaoh's heart is against the God of Israel. He has been a willing tool used in the hands of the enemy, and thus he has hardened his own heart against the Lord. So understand that the battle is the Lord, but see Pharaoh's heart against the Lord. But also see that God is in control. We not only see that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, but we see that God himself hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why is this important? Why is it important for God's people to understand this? Well, I would suggest to you this is important because God's people need to understand that opposition is sometimes part and parcel of the Lord's plan for deliverance. Opposition is sometimes part and parcel for the Lord's plan for deliverance. Dear ones, it may very well be the case that in the next 10 or 20 years, we may come under some serious pressure in our society to in some way abdicate the things that we believe, in some way soften or abandon the things that we believe. And we shouldn't merely, when these things happen, attribute those things to the enemy. But we should also understand that whatever, whatever situation that we endure, whatever we live through, that all of this opposition, all of these circumstances, have to pass through the hand of God They have to pass through the hand of God and so the people of God need to understand that this is part and parcel of the Lord's plan God in hardening Pharaoh's heart has done no violence to the will of Pharaoh yet he uses Pharaoh's hard heart for his own glory and you say pastor that that's kind of neat that God does that in the New Testament well turn over to Acts chapter 2 if you would We don't worship a God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We worship one God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching at Pentecost to, to a crowd of Jews gathered there for that celebration. And in preaching the cross of Jesus, he says this to them in verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 23 again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed. It's the very same thing that we see going on with Pharaoh. God does no violence to the will of the men who kill and crucify the Lord Jesus. God manipulates them in no way whatsoever. But God uses their evil purposes for his glory. This is is precisely what he does with the murderous hatred aimed at his people in Exodus. He uses that. To draw glory to himself and to save his own people and so the last thing i would like you to consider with genesis 3 as our background is israel's journey to the promised land the journey to the promised land hebrews 11 frames the entire old testament but especially the journey of god's people as as a type of christian journey to the promised land it says of Moses, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater Than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith he passed through the Red Sea as by dry land which the Egyptians are saying to do, were drowned. Note the repetition, friends. By faith. By faith. Israel has to learn to walk by faith. As the seed of the woman, they do not know how to walk by faith. Immediately after Exodus, God's people are brought to the promised land they're brought rather to the wilderness and by God's grace and mercy the seed of the woman has escaped the seed of the serpent but they must now learn what it means to be the people of God and the rest of the book of Exodus presents presents us with a typology for sanctification Israel is to physically sanctify themselves in order to worship the Lord we read about that in Exodus 19 Israel are are given moral laws that set them apart from the world around them. They're given ceremonial laws which point to heavenly realities and civil laws that reflect life in the kingdom of God. Why would God do all of this? Because they are people of the promised seed. They are people of the promised seed. They've got to be the people that reflect God's goodness, that reflect God's character to the watching world. Listen to the law of God in Deuteronomy 7. Listen to what God says. God says to them, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you, because you were more numerous than the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Listen to what he says. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Why did God do it? Because he keeps his oath that he swore to their forefathers. God keeps his covenant promises. God said that there would be a seed that would come that would crush the seed of the serpent. He has promised. He has decreed. He has told Abram, it is through you, Abram, that all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so why in the world does God save Egypt? Save Israel, excuse me, from Egypt. Why does he bring them out? Because God made a promise, and God intends to keep his promises. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness thank you for your faithfulness to your promises O god for it is by your covenant promises that we are saved and born again through jesus christ and so lord we consider our own lives that you have called us to be your people to be your people that witness your character your goodness to the world and so father we pray that as we go about our business this week that you would help us to do that very thing lord that we would reflect your goodness your character and that father that given the opportunity to share your love and mercy for sinners that you would help us O lord to share the good news of jesus christ with those who are suffering in the wilderness of sin. Father, help us to be your people, to answer your call upon our lives. Father, that you would receive the glory and that people would receive the good from your gracious hand. We pray it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.